If you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can pull them out to 1 Peter, uh, open them up to 1 Peter, and then we're going to be, really uh, spend most of our time in verses 1 and 2 this morning. So, uh, talk to you about just some of our, our history as a nation, particularly our recent history. Uh, about 30 years ago in the United States, anybody who was a Bible-believing Christian, which many of you would have put yourselves in that category, uh, you were facing a host of what-ifs. About 30 years ago, Bible-believing Christians were facing a host of what-ifs. And so I want to I tell you some of those what-ifs that, that people were facing. It, it was uh, maybe a question of what if marijuana is legalized? Uh, what if the murder of the unborn is celebrated and promoted? What if public schools were allowed to indoctrinate our kids with anti-Christian propaganda? What if Christians lose the culture war? What if people stop going to church? What if pulpits on Sunday morning become more about preaching self-help than they actually are about preaching the gospel and the word of God? What if churches give in to the weight of cultural pressure and they actually start to conform to society's standards? What if Bible-believing Christians are mocked in the public square more than they are given influence? Now, uh, many of those things, the reality is, many of those things, many of those what-ifs, now not necessarily all of them, and not all of them to the degree that I stated them, but many of those what-ifs have become the what-is of our culture today. They describe our culture today, and you know, this is, I mean, this is why we had things in the 80s and the 90s, like, like the moral majority, right? We were, we were afraid of what might happen to our culture, and so we were trying to to protect our culture. We were trying to protect the church. We were worried about all of these things. So that's the reality. Now, now that this is our what is today, we have a whole new host of what ifs that lie in front of us. So I want to uh, talk about the possibility of what some of those might be. What if it becomes illegal to teach basic Christian doctrine to your kids because it's considered hate speech? What if the government decides that religious organizations actually can't own property anymore because of the kind of doctrine that they might teach? What if the government has permission to take our kids simply because of what we believe? What if homeschooling becomes illegal? What if Christians or other kinds of religious schooling becomes illegal? What if the government decides once and for all that sexual freedom is actually a more basic priority in human right than religious freedom? What if the government decides that the Christian way of life is actually a threat to our society? What if a state legislature votes to make it illegal for conservative Christians or people of other faiths to live out their faith because our ideology creates what some might call unsafe spaces? What if Jesus goes from maybe just being annoying and offensive to ultimately illegal? Now, my job as a pastor is to equip us as a congregation for every single one of the what-ifs that might come our way. Right, so, so this is, this is uh, something we have to be clear about. 
No matter what the what if is, it doesn't matter what the what if is, it doesn't matter if any of those things I said actually take place or not. You know what? Christians really don't have to freak out. Like, and can I, can I be honest? Like, some of our representation in the public square looks a lot more like freaking out than it does like hoping in Jesus. So here's the thing. We have the Bible. We have, we have 2,000 years of Christian history to tell us that the, the pattern of faithful Christian living, no matter the circumstance, is this. Find joy in the what is and prepare for the what if. That's simply what we do. We find joy in the what is. So if we don't like the what is, guess what? I don't care. We're supposed to find joy in it. And, and, and if we don't know, we don't know what's coming our way, we're going to work to prepare for what's coming our way. But all the time, we're still being grounded in our joy. So as of today, we're starting a series called Exiled. And uh, this is a series through the book of First Peter. We're going to go all the way up to December. I actually have the privilege to be, uh, we as a church, there are several other churches in our area that are actually working through First Peter all at the same time. I get the privilege to prepare with a group of other pastors. There are, uh, there are at least three of us and then maybe one more pastor who's going to jump into this. We're all going through this together. And so we all, we all uh, prepare together. It saves me so much time in terms of my prep. We get a lot of minds at the table. But, but we, we sit and we talk about the book. We talk about the, the direction that we need to take it, and then we all adjust it for our churches. And so kind of, that's, what, that's what happens with that. But we're going through this book. And the reason we're going to dig in here is because First Peter is all about how we live for Jesus when our what-ifs, and they might be scary to us, they might be concerning to us, but when those what-ifs become our what-is. So uh, here's what that looks like for the people that Peter is writing to. I want to talk to the people that Peter is writing to now. This is their big what-if, and it is now starting to become a what-is in their life. It's this, what if my country, what if my home, what if my people reject me because of my faith? What if this takes place in my life? What if I start to be excluded in society? So uh, we're in 1 Peter, and we'll be right at the beginning of the chapter. Before we get into it, I want to understand just the world of Peter's audience, what they were going through, the things that they were experiencing. And so, so what I want to do is I actually want to articulate something that we we might experience that is going to be very similar. So I'm going to force us to wrap our minds about, around what this experience would have been like for First Peter's audience, what they went through. So I want you to imagine that this happens. Imagine that the Illinois government begins to create a registry of everybody who calls themselves a Christian. They begin to have this list together. And then once they get the list put together, this is what they start doing. They force employers to terminate the jobs of those Christians. They require banks to take away the homes of those Christians. Uh, they, they then threaten those Christians with jail time if they do not leave the state. So then, uh, so then you have this threatening jail, you, you don't leave the state, your pension is gone, access to your bank accounts is rejected, uh, the White House says absolutely nothing about it, the Illinois government is just allowed to do this, and so now Christians are being scattered to all the other states around Illinois. 
They're scattered away from their jobs, away from their families, away from any sense of a a social support system that might exist, and they have to go to other places. And the surrounding states, here's the thing, they have room, but the needs that you have are astronomical because you have just gone from being a contributor to, to society to now when you go into these states, you have nothing to offer. You're essentially refugees in these states when you leave. You're now a cultural inconvenience to the people around you. And and on top of that, you're a cultural and religious minority. Your worldview is seen as oppressive and ignorant and perhaps even dangerous. And some of your friends out of your state, you know what? They invite you into their homes. They give you a place, but they feel like they have to hide you. They feel like they can't really be honest with the people uh, around them about who they're actually having in their house. So what, what kind of emotional experience do you have about this? This happens, say it happens really quickly in the span of a week. You have to figure things out. You're mad because what happened? Your, your place, your home has turned on you. Your home has sent you away. I have a question for you. This, because if this actually happened, the, it would give a whole new experience to, to Jesus' words when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right? But this is, this is the reality that, that would ha- you would have. And, and so you might ask these questions. Hey, do I fight back? Do I try to stand my ground? How am I supposed to thrive spiritually when my government leaders are, are preparing to ruin me and to, to, to get me out of my home? What, what, if they, what if they actually decide that they just won't, don't want to take my home, they just don't want to take my job, but they, they actually want to take my life? Welcome to the audience of First Peter. This is what the people in First Peter actually experienced. I articulated it to you as if the Illinois government did it, right? But, but take that category out of your heads. This is that, what that felt like to you. This is what they were actively experiencing. So if you're receiving this letter, you're discouraged. You're perhaps even hopeless. Okay, so then now imagine you've been relocated to this new home. And one day, a guy named Sylvanus, he shows up in your city, and then what he's doing is he's looking for any Jesus followers he can find. He's looking for anybody he can get uh, because he has something he needs to share with you. He has this letter that he wants to tell about you. So so he gets all, all of the Christians that he can find together, and you all gather together in somebody's house, and, uh, and then he reads these words. Verse 1, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. So as soon as you hear these words, you're instantly attentive. You have to pay attention because you know who Peter is. You know everything about Peter. You know that Peter preached at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit fell. Like the Holy Spirit fell upon a bunch of people. People were speaking in different people's languages. Miracles were being done. Amazing things were happening. People looked in on this situation and said, oh my goodness, like what is this? But God was doing a work of his spirit in this instance. So that's what happened when Peter preached at Pentecost. And then Jesus said some things about Peter. Like when he talked to him, he said, he actually changed his name. He said, your name is Peter. Peter means rock. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Right? So he actually gives Peter some level of leadership authority. He's seen as a key leader among the disciples. And, and then Peter was given a really specific personal mission from Jesus. And it's that, that mission that he was given that actually makes him really sympathetic to your cause as somebody who's been kicked out of your home. So let's talk about what that mission is. 
At the end of John's gospel, there's this conversation between Peter and, or sorry, uh, between Peter and Jesus. Peter and Jesus have, have, have this conversation because what happened was Peter, before Jesus was crucified, Peter had actually denied ever knowing Jesus. He denied three times ever knowing Jesus. And so then, so we get to this situation after Jesus is now risen from the grave uh, and, and Peter and Jesus are on the shore together and they're having this conversation. And it's this exchange that essentially... Uh, Jesus asked Peter, hey, Peter, do you love me? And he asks him three times, and all three times, this is what Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, take care of my people. This is the responsibility I'm giving to you. And then after he gives him the responsibility, this is what Jesus tells Peter. Verse 18, John chapter 21, he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And verse 19 tells us what he meant by that. He says, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So this is 25 years before Peter writes this letter, this interaction between him and Jesus. And can I tell you two facts that Jesus became aware of, or sorry, that Peter became aware of 25 years before he ever wrote this letter? The first fact is this. He knew, when I'm older, Rome will torture me, and they will crucify me like they crucified Jesus. That's what it means when it says, stretch out your hands. Rome will kill you. Rome will murder you for what you are doing. So that's the first fact he was aware of. Second fact he was aware of, before that time comes, I have one job, to shepherd people who are facing similar realities. So Peter's now writing, and and after he's been sitting with this job description that Jesus gave him for the last 25 years, the situation they, these people are in, they think it's really hard. They think it's, it's really challenging. And, and actually, it legitimately is challenging. But who better to write to them than Peter, who had to live with the reality of facing the fact that his future had death in it. His future was a gruesome, torturous death. So here's some perspective You know, you who are facing some really hard challenges, you know what Jesus told me before he ascended into heaven? Jesus told me I was going to be killed in a torturous and painful way. And so you know what? There's no one better to help you understand the middle of your difficulty when the what ifs become the what is like Peter. Because Peter's what is all of these years has been your future is a gruesome, torturous death. And so back in chapter one, we have Peter and Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. So uh, just to understand what that, that word means, in this instance, the word apostle is referring to Peter's authority and position as one of those whom Jesus had chosen to uh, lay the foundation of the church. So this is a, a, a position of high authority. It's an, it's an office given to those who wrote scripture for us, to, help, to those who helped us understand the kinds of things that the church was to be about. And so there are three qualifications for this kind of office in Scripture. You had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry and resurrection. You had to be personally called by Jesus. And you had to, you had to perform some level of sign, signs and wonders. And, and this all happened uh, through Peter. 
And so there are no people today who actually have the office of apostle, although we, we acknowledge apostleship as a kind of gift of seeing where uh, new ministry efforts might start, church planting, that kind of stuff. But, but the office of apostle is really an office of high authority. It's an office that, that nobody else claims to because these people wrote scripture. And they had the special responsibility to establish kind of the foundational doctrine of the church, how the church would move forward. So then this role is, is won by means that, that Peter is actually able to fulfill this job description that Jesus gave to him. As an apostle, as he's laying the foundation of the church, he gets to be a shepherd for how the church is going to initiate its beginnings. So he's feeding the sheep that way. But then, but then this responsibility that Jesus gives him, it's further displayed in who he addresses the letter to. So he goes on in, in verse 1. It says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So I want you to imagine you've been displaced from your home. You've been scattered in the states all around. And then this guy, Sylvanus, who has this letter for you, and, and he tells you when he opens it up and he, he sits there and he reads it with you and your Christian friends, like what he says is that this letter is to and for you. And that's going to feel really important to you because at about this time, it's going to feel to you like you've been forgotten. Because, you know, the, the centers of where, where the church is growing and the church has a lot of influence, that's in Rome, that's in Corinth, that's in Ephesus, it's in those places of high influence. But you know where it's not? It's in all of these rural towns, all scattered out in all of these countries. And there's no influence there and you feel like somebody's forgotten about you. But... Peter hasn't forgotten about you. And so what we're actually led to think is that there was, there, there was some kind of event that happened that sent a bunch of Christians from one central location out to all of these different locations. And so we have to talk about that event. Now, I will, I'll tell you what gives us this clue. This clue, uh, we get it at the end of the letter. 1 Peter five twelve through 13, this is what it says. It says, by Silvanus, Silvanus is the guy who's reading the letter to you, a faithful brother, brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And then, verse 13, he says, she who is at Babylon. When he says she who is at Babylon, he's referring, that's like code word for the church in Rome. The church in Rome gives greetings to you, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So when he's talking about that, it's likely that what's happening is he's referencing a church that all of these people he's writing to used to be a part of. Like something happened in Rome to send a bunch of Christians out of Rome into all the surrounding countries. And Peter knows he has a responsibility to even take care of those sheep that somebody else might have forgotten about. And so back in verse 1, he writes to these exiles and I want to talk about what the word exiles mean. It says, Peter, he's writing to people who are literally exiled from their home. They've been kicked out of their home. But there's another facet to what the word exiles means. And uh, we need to consider it because, because this is not just a literal sense, these people are exiles, but there is a, a very real and true sense in which all of us are exiles. We are spiritual and metaphorical exiles in this world. And this is something we need to understand. If you're a believer in Jesus, this world is not your home. As long as you live in this world, the instant that you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you have a different and more important home. So now you live in this world as a place that that doesn't really want you here. 
You live in this world as an exile. You will never be truly at home. You should never actually feel like you belong here. When we become partakers in Jesus' kingdom, we become a part of a world that has an entirely different set of values than the world that we live in. Has an entirely different set of operating procedures, an entirely different way of worship. That We should carry no expectation that the world and all of its authorities would be hospitable to us. Would actually care about our concerns. And so this is why when I see America, and yes, like things are falling apart morally, when I see values that used to exist here erode, I might be saddened by that. I might even stand up for justice to try to maintain those, those values, but you know what I don't do? I don't fret. I don't fret and I don't fear because I never expect to be, quote, at home in America. I never expect to be at home in this world ultimately because my ultimate home is God's kingdom. So while he's writing to people who are literal exiles, he's also writing to, he's, he's trying to own, get them to own their identi- identity as exiles. He's trying to get them to remember where their real home is. And you know, this was Jesus' expectation from the very start. We have a different home. John 15 Verses 18 and 19, Jesus tells this to his disciples. He says, hey, if, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, then this is what would happen. The world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus is saying, hey, you guys are never going to be at home. And I'm sorry, and that's hard, but guess what? Your new home is a whole lot better. So chapter one, or sorry, verse one. So after, after considering what it means that exiles, I finally want to zero in on this identity that Peter gives them. He calls them elect exiles. So this, this is what that means. That means uh, the word elect or election is just referring to God's choosing. And, and this simply means that God chose these people to be exiles. In the dispersion, or uh, another word for dispersion is scattering. So this is what he's saying. God has chosen, God has decided that these hardships are going to come upon you. God has elected you to go through these hardships. God has chosen this because, you know, what's, this is what's going to happen. So I have a map up here. I'd like for us to take a look at this map. God is going to take Jesus followers filled with the Holy Spirit, from one central location, and he's going to disperse them all throughout the known world. And you know what's going to happen after he does that? More people are going to become disciples because of the relationships that they build with those disciples. So, from, uh, so you can't really see it, but in the top left corner there is Rome in Italy. And these, uh, these folks were dispersed from Rome all the way through Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, uh, Pontius, and Cappadocia. So, so uh, Asia Minor is what we refer to that as. But they're, they're spread from one central location out to this really wide area. And so now people are going to come to know Jesus because God has allowed his people to be dispersed. Because he's allowed them to be scattered around this area. More disciples are going to be made. More people will come to salvation. And the kingdom is going to expand. And yes, it's really hard. Yes, it's really painful what has happened to you. But you know what? God is carrying out his mission through this thing that has happened. 
So this, this scattering was really only the beginning. This is the reality. This scattering was only the beginning of, of persecution for these Christians. And I want to talk about just how persecution works in God's economy. So you know what? When, when Rome thought that they would try to eliminate Christians by scattering them, well, uh, it expanded the kingdom in, in a really significant way. Um, let's talk about some other examples of persecution. You know, when the Chinese government said, uh, Christians... You can't meet together. You, uh, you're not allowed to get buildings. You're not allowed to own property. You know what the Christians did? They actually, they said, we can only be so big. We can only have about 15 of us in one home. And then after that, we have to go to a new home. We have to start a new church. And so they, because the government wouldn't let them gather together, they gathered secretly in their homes. And so when the Chinese government tried to kill the church in China, the church exploded rapidly. Let's talk about uh, what's happening in India right now. The Indian government has decided that it wants to eliminate all the Christian influence in India right now. And, and so um, by any means necessary, the prime minister of India has encouraged people, do whatever you have to do to get the Christian influence out of India. Did you know that, that Christianity is exploding actively in India right now? I just read... Uh, an article the other day. It was really surprising and really encouraging. Uh, Iran has the fastest growing Christian population today. Iran, a Muslim country, a country that is, uh, that has always seemed to be hateful of Christians, that has not wanted Christians to thrive. The church in Iran is thriving in a place where it faces persecution. So, Whatever this is going to do, yes, God chose to scatter you away from your homes. Yes, God chose to put you through some major difficulties. And yes, that's a painful reality. But you know what it's going to do? It's going to advance the mission of God in the world. People are going to get saved, and the message of Jesus will be clear. So Alliance Bible Church, what that really presents, the reality that that really presents to us is this. Your suffering amplifies Jesus' message like comfort never could. Your suffering amplifies Jesus' message like comfort never could. So I want to talk to you about uh, these people that that Peter uh, is writing to. One to two years after this letter was written, you know what would happen? Nero, the emperor Nero, would, uh, he would be really concerned about uh, Christian influence and he would decide to burn Rome and blame it on the Christians. He, he would decide to create an event by which all the people in Rome would start to hate Christians. And then, uh, you know what would start to happen after that? The Colosseum, this place where gladiators would fight each other. You know what they would do for the warm-up for the gladiators? They would send Christians out to be eaten by the lions while all of the people looked around and laughed and mocked and had a great time. Throughout the entire Roman Empire, persecution of Christians would actually become more focused. So when Peter's writing to these people, it's not like, hey, this is about to let up anytime soon. It's going to get more intense. You know what would happen after that? The church would expand exponentially. Like uh, 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 10,000 Christians at the end of the first century would become 6 million Christians in the next 150 years. And then eventually to the point today where billions of people call themselves Christians, claim the name of Christ. So yes, you've been scattered. And yes, guess what? It's going to get worse than it already is. But God is up to something. So 
So you still might not be convinced, though. You might think that um, you might still look at this idea of exile as a bad thing, as a thing not to be welcomed. And so, so this is what Peter does. Peter offers them some other reminders about their identity. He's like, yes, you're exiles, but here are some other realities about your identity in verse 2. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with his blood. So he, he wants to remind them of their identity in the middle of exile. So he gives them some things that they need to remember in their exile. He says, according to the foreknowledge. Foreknowledge simply tells them this. Hey, this is a part of God's plan. So you know what? You can take comfort in the midst of it. God is going to use it to maybe advance his mission. God might even be using this to purify his people. You know what he might be doing? Because he's done it before, he might be using this event to discipline his people. But whatever it might be, he's done it before, and he, we can know that he might do it again. And, and no matter what, take comfort because God's purposes are at play. God knows what he's doing. So that's foreknowledge, sanctification. Sanctification is a big, heavy theological word, and it it simply means this. God will use it to make me more like Jesus. God will use this thing that I'm going through to make me more like Jesus. So the Spirit, like the, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste any ounce of experience that comes our way, especially when it's hard experience. He will use every ounce of suffering that you face to change you and to make you more and more like Christ. And then it says for obedience. Obedience simply tells us that as we, as we begin to walk into this letter, as we begin to try to understand what Peter's telling us, he, he, he lets us know at the outset our job is to obey. We have a responsibility to obey. In, in the middle of whatever exile I'm facing, I don't use excuses to walk away, but I, I stick through it and I obey every single word that the Lord wants to speak to me through this. He's using his office as an apostle. He's using the authority that he's given, that that the Lord has given him to to invite these people into obedience. Peter's saying, I get it, you don't like it. Hey, guess what? Christian influence is diminishing. Guess what? You probably have an uncomfortable future. But Peter is a shepherd here, and as a shepherd, he has some concerns about people. He wants us to think. He wants us to think in the ways that Jesus would think. He wants our passions to be Jesus' passions. He wants our lives to be Jesus' life as we live in exile. So then finally, he reminds them of this. He reminds them of sprinkling with his blood. And what that tells us is that in the middle of persecution, in the middle of our exile, whatever it is, in it, we, I need to remember what Jesus endured for me, for my sake. Jesus died on the cross in order to give you a secure identity. So that when you trust in him, he suffered and died the worst pain and torture. And he died and he was raised from the dead. And all of this happened to make you clean before God. Everything that needs to be true of you when you approach God the Father is already true of you when you place your trust in Jesus because Jesus has secured it. Your future is certain. Everything, your, your relationship with God has been cared for by Jesus and has been accomplished by Jesus. In fact, this thing is the most secure thing about you. He suffered to earn that for you because you couldn't earn it on your own. So you know what? Live faithfully in exile. You've been sprinkled with, with his blood. You have been secured for a future with him. So live faithfully in your exile. 
And all of this is really, really important because now these people are asking. These people he's writing to, they've been scattered, they've been taken away from their homes. And they have a new what if. Their new what if is this. What if they kill us because of Jesus? Not just what if they take my home away. Not just what if they take my job away. Not just what if I don't have the influence that I used to have. What if they kill us because of Jesus? Okay, so what? I just have one this morning, and and, um, I'd encourage you, this is the way that it it works. Uh, You need to change the question that you're asking from how could God let this happen to what could God be up to. You know, when we, when we see the things that, that we might go through, uh, we might tend to ask, God, how could you let this happen? How could you allow uh, people to take ground? How could you allow Christians to be pushed out of the place of influence? How could you allow us to be headed to the fringes of society? How could you let them take our jobs away? Lord, how could you, how could you let us be taken out of our homes? How could you? So we need to change the question that, are asked, that we're asking. Peter would encourage us to change the question that we're asking from, God, how could you, to what could you be up to in the midst of this? What larger strategy could God have in my suffering? What skeptics might God be speaking to through my willingness to endure in the midst of whatever difficulty comes my way? How might God be using this to get me to trust him more? You know, going through hardship, and, and honestly, the, the hardship that we face is really nothing in comparison to, uh, it's not even fair to call it hardship in comparison to the things that people are facing around the world. But, uh, but even the, the hardships that I've faced for my faith in, in relationships with, with other people who didn't necessarily value it the way that I did, it, they've done more to shape me than me just being comfortable ever could. They've been done more to create me into the kind of person that, that God desires me to be than, than me just being comfortable ever could. So as we go into First Peter, and, and even as we, um, you know, I really, as we look at this, I want us to consider the cultural moment that we live in right now. What's going on in our country, in our world. You know, there, there's less people coming to church. There's no prayer in schools. There's decreasing cultural influence for Christians. There's curriculum in schools that are opposed to Christian, Christian teaching. All of this stuff is true. But, but I think we need to change the question that we're asking. Not, God, how could you let this happen? But, God, what are you up to in the middle of this? Let's pray. Father, as we... Um, just reflect on the reality that, yeah, we, we really feel like we've lost ground. We feel like we don't have many options in front of us. And Lord, it's easy to be fearful and it's easy to fret. And so Lord, as, um, as we're tempted to do those things, would you just draw our hearts to you? Would you help our hearts to stand firm in the hope that we have in Jesus? Lord, the living hope that is given to us because Jesus secured for us a salvation that is imperishable, that nobody can take away from us. And so, Lord, would you help us to rest, to stand firm? Lord, and and in the midst of it, would you do whatever you're going to do? Would you even maybe give us the opportunity to see what it is that you might be up to?
Lord, how you might be using the things that we're facing to, to make us more like Jesus, to make your church more pure. Lord, maybe, maybe you might be disciplining us. I don't know. But whatever it might be that you're doing, Father, I ask that you would just, in the midst of all of it, help us to stand firm in you. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close in worship?